there to be, uh, I wasn't there to be tempted by her culinary masterpieces. Uh, I, was, um, I was here getting ready, studying, getting ready, putting the word together. Uh, but I must confess, I have to confess this to you, during this 21 days of fasting, uh, cooking meals for my family has taken on uh, whole new challenges. Uh, these past two weeks, I've been navigating this, this boundary of, of preparing meals for our six kids while maintaining the commitment to this fast. And honestly, uh, usually fasting, I don't have a problem around food. I'm like, no, I, this is what I'm doing. I'm committed to it. Uh, and I can cook and it's no problem. Uh, but, and, but this, this week, as I stood over the oven with this searing flesh in the pan, uh, wafting up into my nose, filling my nostrils with joy and happiness, <laughs> I had to exercise, uh, quite a bit of restraint and willpower, much more than I ever have in the past uh, during a a fast. And um, this week truly has been, it's been a test of my resolve. Uh, Friday night, after an incredible uh, evening of prayer and worship that we had here, uh, I invite you, come on out. It's, It's a good time. That night, as I was sleeping, I had these vivid dreams where I was indulging in all of my favorite foods. And I don't dream very often. And this dream seemed very real to me. I woke up. Have you ever woke up from a dream feeling guilty? I woke up from this dream feeling guilty. And I was like, did I? Did I go and make myself some food in the middle of the night? I was questioning myself. Uh, uh, despite my fasting time, though, we've been trying to keep our, our family dinner time like the, uh, a special sacred time. You know, our, our family dinners in our homes, they shouldn't just be uh, where, when everyone gathers to eat. Uh, it's an opportunity. Your family dinners are an opportunity to be connected. It's an opportunity for you to share your lives together around that family dining table. The, the family dining table, it's a place where our family's stories get told. It's a, it's a stage, if your house is like mine, for that chaotic symphony to become a harm, harmonious melody of unity. When you have a bigger family, you know, chances are when you make food, Chelsea, you probably understand this. When you make food, maybe not everybody in the house is super excited for what you're making. It's, it's hard to please a big family. When it's hard to make everybody at the table happy. And I cooked a meal this week that didn't quite align with all of my children's taste buds. I could tell even before I put the plates down at the table that some of my girls were like, I don't like this. I don't want to eat this. So I'm like, well, that's too bad. <laughs> and unfortunately for the whole family, uh, my girls, uh, they thought that that night, choosing to abstain from eating their dinner was a battle that was worth fighting. Now, if something's unappealing to me, If I don't like something, I'm not going to lie to you about it. I'm not going to pretend to like it. I'll I'll take it anyway, uh, and I'll be gracious about it, but I'll I'll be honest. You know, it's it's very difficult to be honest 
with people about what we don't like. It actually, it takes work for us to do that. It takes work to offer constructive criticism rather than just complain. But I think it's worth it for us. And I would rather do the work to speak the truth in love and be honest and give constructive feedback instead of lying. Just so we can spare some feelings. See, there's a delicate balance between uh, our expressions of freedom and our need to have mutual respect for one another. And I try to stress to my children that, hey, you are allowed to dislike something. You are allowed to give me constructive criticism on the meals that I make you, but you're gonna be grateful for it regardless of whether you like it or not. Uh, You're not gonna throw a fit over what is served to you. Throwing a fit is never an option. But yes, you have the freedom. You should share your opinion. Uh, If you don't like it, you don't have to pretend to like it. But you're still going to eat it. You're still going to participate. But I want them to know that I care about them. Their likes and their dislikes, their tastes, they're going to be considered. But what they want will not rule the day. It's not going to win out all the time. They're not always going to get what they want. And sometimes uh, the meal is going to be something that they don't particularly care for. See, there's a a lesson for life that I want my kids to learn here. I, I want them to know that they need to honor the effort that's expended over serving them, regardless of it being Uh, something that they personally care for. And I want them to know that they're allowed to speak the truth. They don't have to hide the truth as long as they're learning to speak the truth with love and respect. They should know, they should be secure in knowing that they don't have to worry about getting in trouble over what they like and dislike. They don't have to worry about getting in trouble for what they're asking for. This is a concept that should extend beyond our dinner table into the core values of them as people. We should live in, we actually live in a world. This world has glorified, this world has valued the suppression of truth. We suppress the truth just to spare each other's feelings sometimes. Many of us have been encouraged in our lives to suppress our opinions just so that we can avoid some conflict. And then when we finally, when we can't take what's going on us or going on around us anymore, we express ourselves abrasively. We express ourselves in the wrong manner. We don't think about or care for who's on the other side of the conversation when we express ourselves in that way. We've never taken the time in our culture to learn how to give good constructive criticism, to speak the truth in love, to care about the person who has opposing values and ideas as we do. See, there's a great importance in learning how to express ourselves with honesty, but also respectfully. And Paul, he exhorts the church in Ephesus 
And this is a, his exhortation is a core value that I try to embody for my children. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 15, Paul says, rather speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So just like Sophie and I, we try to teach our children that they have the freedom to come and talk to us. They have to, the freedom to articulate what they prefer to us, as long as they do it uh, uh, respectfully. See, we have that same freedom with our Father in heaven. The way we speak to God has a very similar idea attached to it. And today we're going to be discovering uh, an aspect of prayer probably that is most familiar to most Christians. It's the aspect of petition in a message that we're going to call Pray It Forward. So over the past couple of weeks, we've already seen uh, our petitions to God. They, they aren't simply, Lord, uh, would you give me all of these things that I want in my life? Lord, would you, would you bless me with, with a lot of money? Uh, you know, if you do, then I'll bless other people, of course. Uh, Lord, would you take away these hard things in my life? I, I don't want to do these things. Our, our petitions, they're, they're a lot more than that. Our petitions come after we have humbled ourselves through confession, recognizing that it is Jesus who we need. We don't need anything else that we could ever think to ask him for. All we really need is Jesus. And then after, we, after we've confessed, then we declare our praises to him and we declare our praises to him simply because he is, simply because he is worthy. And then, then we make our requests known. Then we lift up our petitions and our petitions should be for God, for his will and to him for his will to be done in our life. Our petition to the Lord is something that we know that it should ex- they, they should express our desires. They should express our concerns to God. They're actually an integral part of our relationship with him. We have the freedom to express our desire to him. During this 21 days, we've been setting this time aside making this time set apart, holy, making this time where we seek God a little more deeply than maybe we do in our normal pace of life so we can more intentionally seek him, more intentionally know him deeply so we can build these stronger patterns of prayer into our lives. And to do that effectively, we have to understand that we have a lot of freedom to speak to the creator of all the universe. And just like my children, they're, they're free to, 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 to speak to me and their mom, to voice their opinions, to give us their requests without any fear of repercussion. You come and you talk to me. You tell me what you need. You're not going to get in trouble for asking for something. You know, the only, the only thing that we might do is, hey, you know, you give them some constructive criticism. Hey, you're, you're being a little whiny right now, you know, which the Lord, I think, does that to us sometimes. But we're allowed to go and, Lord, have you ever read the Psalms? The psalmist whines a little bit sometimes. 
It's okay. The Lord can handle it. But sometimes we give our kids constructive criticism and, hey, you're, you're being a little whiny, you know? You, you can come and ask a little more graciously. We who are followers of Jesus, we are encouraged. We are encouraged to speak to the Lord with no fear. Now, this doesn't mean we go to him and we demand all of our desires uh, as though we are entitled children. What it means is that we can talk to God. We can talk to the creator of the universe and we can be assured that he loves us. And we talk to him like we would anybody else that we care for. We, we talk to him with respect, but we can approach him with boldness. We can approach him without fear of him smiting us. We can express our hearts to him, knowing that God, our ultimate perfect father in heaven, he listens to our cries. He listens to our petitions. At least Eden cares about what I'm saying. Come on, church. Man. The Lord listens to our petitions with love and understanding. As we grow in our relationship with him, as we grow spiritually in our understanding of God's word, as we grow in who, knowing who God is, our hearts, they begin to align with his heart. And then our petitions, they will begin to align with his will. And not just his will for our lives, but our prayers will begin to be centered around others. And they'll be centered around his will for others. The more we seek to know the Lord, the more, the more our searching results in us becoming people who are aligned with his will, who are aligned with his purpose. Just like my kids, they're learning to express their dislikes with constructive criticism, without fear of repercussion. We learn that we can articulate our petitions. We can give God our requests without fear of repercussion. We can tell him what we need. He's not gonna beat us up over it. You should create in your lives patterns of prayer. Uh, you should create habits of prayer in your life where your petitions are being made known to God, but always with the humble acknowledgement that God's wisdom, God's wisdom far surpasses any wisdom that any of us collectively could have in this room. And ultimately his sovereign will, it's going to be accomplished no matter what happens in our lives. And this type of prayer life, that type of prayer life, that will bring us to a place where we are becoming more hungry for his presence. Don't you want to be hungry for his presence in your life? Do you like the status quo of every day? All right, Lord, I know you're up there and I'm going to go do all of these things. Or do you want his presence tangible and felt in your daily life? We get this simple idea uh, confused. We get it lost in our lives sometimes. We, we, 
I think we, we settle into that status quo uh, because we like, you know, it, it takes so much effort to actually have the Lord present in my life. I've got to go, I've got to pray so long. I've got to read so much scripture before the Lord's going to show up and be a palpable presence in my life. You know, there's these certain rituals that I must go through. Uh, if I do these things, then I'm able to feel the presence of God. Then I can speak to God. But our, those are distorted perspectives. We can approach God without all of that stuff getting in the way. You know, some of us, we go down this path and we, we feel like we can only approach God if we're, we come fearfully, if we come with trepidation and, and you speak to God, not like he's your father in heaven who's good, but you speak to him like a taskmaster and that you're fearful of. You know, you can walk in boldness. You can be confident in the access that Jesus provides you to the father. Jesus provides you, he grants you access to the throne of grace. Ephesians 3.12, Paul tells us, in whom, talking about Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What Paul's saying, he's contrasting between what we have available to us, what Christian worship has available to it, the Christian worship that is rooted in trust, our Christian worship is rooted in a relational confidence. And every other worship system that's out there doesn't. And that's Paul's contrasting those here. All the other worship systems that are available, they're, they're entrenched in fear or work. Yesterday, as I was preparing, uh, my friend Josh O'Donnell, you guys know him, he comes up and preaches sometimes. Uh, he was also studying for today and he texted me. Uh, he texted me this. He said, the word access in Ephesians 3.12, it's not a mere invitation to stand in the presence of a superior. It is an open door for conversation, an invitation to speak freely with the sovereign God of all the universe. Doesn't that change your understanding of how you can approach God? That should amplify the relational nature of our worship. The Christian worship system that we have access to, it should not be one that cultivates feelings of fear and dread in our lives. When Jesus, when he meets this woman at the well that we've been talking about for a few weeks, we get this foretaste of the freedom that Jesus was ushering the, the believers into, the, the proper worship system that he wanted to set up. So Jesus, you guys know the story, wearied from his long walk from Jerusalem up to Galilee, he, and he's, going, he's taking the shortcut through Samaria because he doesn't care about the, uh, the social pressure of not loving the Samaritans. And so he goes there and he, and he sends his disciples into Sychar. He tells them, go get some food. And he goes and he sits down uh, by Jacob's well, and, he, and he's waiting. And he's waiting for this woman. And this Samaritan woman, she approaches the well. And you know, you've heard me say it, Jews and Samaritans, they had a deep-seated hatred, animosity towards each other. Uh, any interaction at this time in human history between a Samaritan and a Jew would have been uncomfortable, to like, put it really nicely. But Jesus 
a Jewish man, he begins a conversation with this woman who is considered an outcast and he dismantles all the social and religious barriers with every word that he speaks to her. See, Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't intimidate this woman with fear. He extends an invitation to her. He was well aware that this Samaritan woman was caught up in the complexities of a sinful life. He knew that she had made sinful choices. Jesus is highly relational with this woman anyway. He's highly relational to this person, this woman who her society had deemed her unworthy of love, unworthy of relationship with anyone let alone the creator of the universe. You know, the Samaritan society, it may have taught her that she had to approach God in fear. But Jesus, he shows up and he redefines for her how she can approach God. He, he unpacks the idea that worship should be not shrouded in fear. Worship should not be done Shaking in your boots. What Jesus does for this woman and, and all of us is offer a path forward with boldness where conversation with the Lord God Almighty is not only permissible, but it's welcome. And as this conversation between the woman and Jesus, as it, as it goes on, Jesus reveals to us a concept that it should revolutionize our prayer and worship today and every day forward, just as much as the day that he spoke it. Jesus, he makes it clear to this Samaritan woman that true worship, it's, it's not about where you are. It's not about your physical location. Your true worship transcends the external, like transcends the physical bounds of our being. Jesus declares in John chapter four, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. The worship that Jesus describes, it's not rooted in fear. It's not rooted in retribution, it's not rooted in religious, rigid rules. Jesus wanted to pull us away from that. And the worship that we should seek to give our good father in heaven is a worship that comes from an authentic heart, from the authenticity of spirit and truth. Our worship should not be tied to fear. We're not obligated to approach God trembling in our boots the throne of grace stands as an open invitation. It's a place where boldness is not just permitted, it's encouraged. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 invites us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're not constrained in Jesus by dread. 
We are invited into a relationship with the Lord where we can approach him in confidence. This understanding of our confident freedom in Christ is not a license for us to live complacent lives. It's not a license for us to act irreverently, but it should be an acknowledgement of the transformative power of a relationship with God can have in our lives, where fear is replaced with trust and worship becomes a celebration of knowing that our God hears us. Your God hears you when you worship him. He loves you. He knows you personally. He wants to hear your petitions. He cares about you. Jesus brought with him a transformative shift in the way that prayer and worship was done. A shift from fear to freedom, from rituals to relationship. And because of the unmerited favor that God made available through Jesus, we have access to this. Because of Jesus, our prayer is now an intimate way that we are able to communicate with our Father in heaven. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In our prayer time, we can release our worries and our concerns. We can proceed in gratitude as we approach the throne of grace. And we can approach and we can give him our petitions. And Paul's call to giving God our requests, it's an invitation for you to go to the Lord and bear your heart. You can tell the Lord everything. Everything that's weighing you down, everything that's holding you back from a deeper, more meaningful life in Christ, you can express to him. He wants to share with you your deepest desires. He wants you to share with him your greatest hopes. Everything that concerns you, he wants you to tell him. And the heart of this verse, it's in the phrase, with thanksgiving. Regardless of what our immediate outcomes are, regardless of where we are today in our lives, we should come with a posture of gratitude. We should come with thanksgiving simply because he is the creator of the universe and he still loves us. He still created us. And we know by his word that he still cares for us, even if maybe we don't quite feel it right now. And as we bring the Lord our petitions, as we lift up praises to him, it will transform our hearts. It will change the way we feel. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he provides a, a blueprint for how we can pray. If you feel like, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I don't feel like I know exactly how to talk to him. Well, you can just talk to him like you would a good, a good dad. You can just talk to him like a friend. But if you need a little blueprint, if you need a foundation, 
Go to Matthew chapter 6. Go to the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus warns us against speaking empty phrases, though. Before he gives us the blueprint for prayer, he says, he says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Meaning, you, you don't have to have all the right words. You don't have to say all of the great things. You just talk to him like a friend. He'll understand. He's going to understand your heart. He already knows your heart. He just wants you to talk to him. Jesus points that he want, points out that he wants genuine, heartfelt conversation from you. The Lord's prayer itself is an outline for what the core elements of a genuine prayer can look like, what, what praying in God's will looks like. These type of prayers that are for God's will to be done. And Jesus, he begins with praying. Uh, he begins with praising God for who he is. He starts off with the praise. It's our father in heaven. Holy is your name. God, you are holy. You are a good father. You're in heaven. He's exalting the Lord just simply for who he is. Jesus aligns our desires with his own purpose when he prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The petition, it's not excessive. Like, Lord, give me all of the things. God, I need a, a, I need a new snowplow because, man, it break, my snowplow breaks down and I'm tired of bugging Pete to give me some help. Like, no, no, that's a selfish prayer. The Lord says, ask for your daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Ask for what you need right now. What do you need to survive right now? What do you need to live right now in this day? And the Lord's prayer even directs us towards confession. The Lord shows us to give a plea for forgiveness and, a, and then commit to forgiving others around us. Jesus' model for prayer, it emphasizes a sincere heart, praying in a heart of humility and a focus on the Lord's will being done above our own. Like, it's important for us to know, even when we pray in alignment with God's will, it's not a, it's not a formula for manipulation. Like, hey, you know, that's a pretty good prayer to be playing, praying for a new snowplow. You know, if I had a new snowplow, uh, I, could do, I could plow the church a whole lot faster, and I could go help other people who might need their, their, their driveways plowed. No, you know what? Yeah, man, Steve, Steve really wants me to go plow his driveway. You know what? Breaking my snowplow all the time gives me and Pete a good chance to hang out. It's not a formula for getting what we want. No, aligning our prayers with his will, it's an invitation to be more intimate with God. When we are sincere you know, when we go to God and we are sincere and we believe that we're praying prayers that align with God's will, we can, can be confused when our prayers don't get answered. God's word offers us some insight into some of the reasons our prayers can be hindered. I'm going to give you five of them. The first 
is if you are acting unjustly. In Isaiah chapter one, verse 15, the Lord says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, maybe you haven't killed anybody and your hands are not full of blood, but have you acted unjustly towards others? See, God reveals here that he may turn away from your prayers when they come from hearts that are caught up in dealing out injustice. For our prayers to be genuine, it is necessary for our hearts to align with God's justice, with God's righteousness. The next is if you are cherishing sin in your heart. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You have unconfessed sin. Are you holding on? Like, you know, like I've been here. I've been in places where I know there's like something that I don't want to give up. I know if I give it up, my, my relationship with the Lord will, will grow more intimate, more deep, but I just want to hold on to that sin. Like I couldn't picture life without it. Do you have that in your heart? Are you treasuring up sin in your heart? because it will act as a barrier to being able to be effectively uh, communicating with God. He wants repentance. He wants a contrite heart before him. This will pave the way for your prayers to be unhindered. Get ready, guys. The next one's for you. Are you not treating your wife well? First Peter chapter three, verse seven, it draws attention to the importance of the marital relationship and how it can affect your prayer life. Peter writes, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I do think this probably goes both ways, though Peter here definitely is addressing husbands. If you mistreat your spouse, it's going to cause disruption in your prayer life. God values the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship is a picture of his relationship with the church. The Lord expects us to act with love and respect towards one another in our marriages and all of our relationships. Next, we have asking with bad motives. James 4, 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Oh man, I used to pray that the Lord would make me a better baseball player all the time. That was my, that was my passion. And thankfully he never, uh, he never granted that pagan wish. <laughs> Jesus' little brother here, he's warning us against praying with selfish motives. Your prayer life, it should not be driven by your desires. It should not be disconnected from God's purposes. 
Genuine prayer seeks alignment with God's will, prioritizing his glory over self-centered request, which leads us to not praying according to God's will. First John chapter five, verse 14 and 15 says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. John emphasizes the connection between praying according to God's will and receiving answers. Genuine prayers that are attuned to God's purposes, genuine prayers that reflect God's God's heart, they come from a surrendered heart. Is your heart surrendered to the Lord today? Is your heart being guided by the Holy Spirit? Do you have a fully surrendered heart that desires God's perfect will in your life and in the lives of those around you? Church, you should see as we've been exploring these different facets of prayer over the past couple weeks, you, you are called to great things in the kingdom of God. Your life with Christ is a journey that goes far beyond these walls. Your life with Christ should be reaching into the very heart of the communities that we live in. God doesn't call you to merely utter words that are directed to him. You are called to embody the essence of Christ's love in practical and tangible ways. You should be seeking to deepen your prayer life, not just for yourself, not just so you can personally be transformed, but so that you can be part of what God wants to do to bring about transfer, transformation within the fabric of this community. Church, you are called. You, every one of you are called. God is calling each and every one of you to be repairers of the breach. You living out the transformed life that he has given you. You will be menders of what is broken if you live out your transformed life. Your prayers should extend beyond this place. Your prayers should extend beyond you and your family. They should go out into the streets and your feet should follow your prayers. You are called to be mending the social and spiritual fractures here in our community. Your prayer life is not where your faith ends, it's ends, it's where your faith begins. The transformative power of prayer, it lies not only in the words that you speak, but it lies in the actions that you take. Your prayer life, it should move you to action. That's how you pray it forward. If you can do this, if I can do this, then together we can cause a ripple effect that begins to mend the brokenness. And it will begin to bring about tangible Christ-like transformation in our community. So this morning, before we, before we continue to lift up our praises to the Lord and worship, before you bear your heart to the Lord and worship this morning, I want you to consider, I want us all to consider these words that David wrote in Psalm chapter 24, verses three and four. 
David asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. See, the answer to this question, church, the answer isn't in the great works that I can go out and perform. The answer is not in what you can produce. It's not in the beautiful words that you can say. The answer is in the condition of your heart. Back in 1949 on the Isle of Lewis in Scotland, the Christians there, they were hungry. They were hungry for the Lord. For months, there was a group from a church there on that island that was seeking the Lord and they would spend special times in prayer and they were patiently waiting on the Lord and they were yearning for something more, something more that would not just transform their lives, but it would transform their entire island. And one evening, to close out a special prayer meeting that they were holding in a barn, a young man armed with just his Bible and a hunger for righteousness. He stood up in front and he read these verses from Psalm 24 aloud. He read, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And the next words that he spoke, they became a catalyst for the fervor and the transformation that would ensue from that barn. He said, brothers, it seems to me useless us sitting here waiting on God like we are unless we are right before God. He said, I have to ask myself first, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And I ask myself now, are my hands clean? Do I have a pure heart? Are the impurities harbored in my heart? Is that what's holding back the community from being transformed? And in that humble barn, hearts began to be laid before the Lord. And this wasn't an exercise in legalism. It was an invitation to introspection. It was an invitation to being willing to align the people's hearts with the Lord and his will. And after that, night, God began to move mightily. And the ripple effect of that encounter was felt far beyond that barn. And the entire island was eventually transformed. Now we know that we can boldly come to the throne of grace. But as we do, we should ask ourselves, we should be introspective with the Lord. We should say, Lord, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? Lord, am I just going through the motions or am I sincere in my relationship with you? Am I sincere in my pursuit of you? 
See, our life with Christ, it's not, a just, it's not just about our personal transformation. It's not just about our personal fix of the Holy Spirit. It's about the transformed lives of those around us. And when our lives are transformed, we can then make a communal effort to transform the community, to see renewal in the community. We're not islands unto ourselves. We are all interconnected. Each one of our lives is intertwined. And when we are unified, when we are unified with cleansed hearts before the Lord, we become a force that can break chains. The church should be a force that is breaking chains of bondage around it. It should be healing wounds. The church should be a catalyst for the transformative power of God working in its community, having its way in the community and reaching beyond the community. Let's pray. God, Oh God of Jacob, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. Lord, your name is above all other names. Lord, I pray that you would search us. Father, show us where our hands are not clean. Lord, reveal the impurity in our heart that we would give it to you and it would be cleansed. Lord, Lord, I pray that we would do this without fear, without fear of how you will receive it knowing that you love us and you want to cleanse us. God, let this moment be a catalyst for the transformative power that you want to work in this generation. Lord, may we be a generation that seeks your face. May we be a generation that doesn't just seek your face for our selfishness, for our transformation, but so that those around us would be transformed, so that the prodigals in our lives would be brought home, so those that are far from you would be healed, would be mended, would be put together, so we could restore the breach here in Talkeetna, the lost generation of people who, they don't just not know you, but they hate you because of their experience, Lord. Lord, would you make us a generation that mends that breach? Lord, we are here. We are open. We are, our hearts are contrite before you, Lord. Have your way. Have your way in us. In the great name of Jesus. Let's worship.